Good morning. How are you guys doing? Welcome to Crossway. My name is Roman. Uh, we'll be continuing our study through the book of 1 Peter. I trust that it's been encouraging to you. Um, this morning we'll be talking about a topic that isn't talked about too much. And you'll see shortly what that is. We're in 1 Peter. We're starting chapter 3 today. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. First Peter 3, 1 through 7. Let me read it. It says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. But this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, love your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the very word of the living God. Let me pray. <clears throat> Lord, we just thank you for this morning that we can gather together with the saints to open up your word and sing praises to you and just read your word and hear preaching from your word. Lord, I pray that you would use me this morning to proclaim these truths, these uncomfortable truths that the world really hates. Lord, open up ears this morning and hearts to hear these words. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi. Are you a good testimony? Maybe you've been asked that before, maybe even as a rebuke. Are you being a good testimony right now? A, toast, a testimony speaks of the impression we give off in front of unbelievers or the world. Maybe that's been one of your prayer requests, to be a good testimony at your workplace or a good testimony for your family during the holidays. What do you look like to your coworkers or friends? I'm sure this is something that you're mindful of throughout the day as you interact with so many non-Christians in this world. But what does it actually mean to be a good testimony? Does it mean that you carry your Bible around everywhere you go or you have from him and through him and to him with a little cross on your social media bio? That's what mine says. Does it mean that you wear Christian t-shirts or you have an 88.3 Life FM magnet on your car? Does it mean that you vote a certain way or you never curse? What does it mean to be a good testimony? Well, it can be some of those things. And Peter, in this section of this letter, he's teaching these elect exiles how to have a good testimony here on this earth. Back in chapter 2, of verses 11 and 12, he says, Beloved, I urge you, 
as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter says, you can be a good testimony to these people who are persecuting you. And in the end, they may glorify God on that day of visitation, that last day. Now, how can an unbeliever give glory to God on the last day? Well, he can't. Something had to have happened to him for this to happen. He had to have become a Christian. And what an amazing promise that some believers who see your life, they see your testimony, will be intrigued. They'll be interested. They'll get curious. What is different about them? I need to find out. Who is this Jesus that they speak of? Why don't these people act or react like everyone else does when they're wronged in the workplace? Why do they act different when tragedy strikes? Sometimes your Christian testimony causes non-Christians to investigate. They investigate the gospel and sometimes they're saved. That is the power of a testimony. Now, to be clear, a testimony is not the gospel, but it can lead to the gospel. And so Peter is discussing how we are to live in the world in such a way as to reach the world for Jesus Christ. And it is important that we maintain our testimony. If we're going to have a good testimony in this world and we're going to be used to win people to Christ, then our lives have to be characterized by certain basic characteristics. And that's what we see in this text. If you look back at verse 13 of chapter 2, it says, be subject, submit. Now what Peter is saying is this, you're going to be caught up in a hostile world, and this hostile world will manifest itself in all social relationships, of which there are three primary ones, the government, the workplace, and the family. These are the three social environments in which we live, going from greater to lesser. The biggest social environment we all live in is we live here in the United States of America. We are therefore answerable to the government and the government of the state and the city and so forth. The next arena of social relationship we exist in is our workplace. We have the responsibility within our employment to submit ourselves to those in authority over us. And now, in chapter 3, Peter covers the smallest location of our social involvement, the family. And in all three of these, he says to what? Submit. Chapter 2.13, submit to the government. 2.18, submit to your employer. And here in chapter 3, verse 1, in regard to marriage, he says, submit to your own spouse. The bottom line of, in our testimony in the society in which we live is submission. That's the key word. Now, you will notice he also says in verse 7, he says, you husbands likewise. And the likewise picks up that same thought of submission. And this is a very basic and essential concept. If we were to have an impact in our culture, we must submit to the, local, to the social order, the social structure, and the social patterns that God has designed. We cannot be rebels. 
We cannot demand our rights. We cannot feel superior. Do you want to be a good testimony? Do you want to stand out? Do you want to be a light for Jesus? Then submit for the Lord's sake. Now I know submission. It's not an easy topic to talk about, especially in today's culture. It's an outdated topic. It's this word submit. It's like a curse word now. It's so offensive. No one wants to hear it. Try standing on the corner of California and Stockdale with a sign that says women should submit to their husbands. I wonder what kind of reactions you'll get. But you know what? It's not just controversial in the world. It's controversial in the church as well. And I think this topic is controversial not because it's unclear in Scripture. It's very clear. It's controversial because people don't understand what the Bible is saying about it. It's controversial because of our sinfulness. In our sinfulness, we've messed it up. We've made a mess of it and made it something God never intended for it to be. Men have definitely twisted this with chauvinism and misogyny, bossing their wives around. Men have taken advantage of women all throughout human history, and sometimes they use the Bible to justify it. And at the same time, women have abused texts like these, thinking it's an attack on their worth and value. And so they just throw it out. They throw it out completely and go to the complete opposite direction towards radical feminism and want nothing to do with passages like these. In a lot of ways, Satan and the world have taken this idea of submission to husbands and twisted it into something the Bible never says that it is. And so today, I hope we can clear some of that up. I hope this is encouraging and will help you press in together in your marriage or help prepare you for marriage if you're not married. And so the title of this message is A Testimony That Cannot Be Ignored. A Testimony That Can't Be Ignored. Now, before we dive into this passage, it's important that you notice the flow of Peter's argument that I've kind of mentioned. These verses here in chapter 3, they're not a discourse on male and female status. They're not a discussion of men and women's worth. They're not even a discussion on Christian marriage. This is mainly a discussion on a mixed marriage where you have a Christian partner and a non-Christian partner. That's the whole context here. How does a Christian live in an unchristian society? How does a Christian live in a non-Christian place of an employment? How does a Christian live with a non-Christian partner? That's the whole context of this passage. Christian testimony in the world. This is a very important topic that doesn't get talked about too much. Now, disclaimer, that doesn't mean that you're, if you're not married or if you're not in an unequally yoked marriage, that you can just check out. This is still important. This is still an important message on submission that has universal application. Submission and the things we're going to talk about are true of those who are in equally yoked marriages as well. And so first, Paul, not Paul, Peter begins, we're just so used to Paul. First, Peter, he begins with the wives. We start with the wives' responsibilities. And you may be thinking, well, this isn't fair at all. Why do the wives get six verses and the husbands only get one? Is anyone thinking that? It's okay if you are. 
But there's actually a very good reason that this is. And it's not because Peter's somehow biased. It's because life in an unequally yoked marriage is much harder for a woman than it is for a man. In Greek culture, the culture that they lived in here, there was a basic principle called patria potestas. And what that means, and what it means was that while they were single, while women were single or living under their father's house, a woman was under her father's power. He could literally kill her if he wanted. And when, he, and when she became married, she was under her husband's power. And he could literally kill her if he wanted. And in both cases, there were no legal recourse. Women were thought of merely as those who served the needs of the male population. And so in their society, if a husband became a Christian, nothing really changed for them. The husband was already in charge, and the woman would already be in the place of submission. So the potential for conflict or strife was minimal. But imagine this, if the woman was saved, it's a whole different story. In that culture, she was seen as barely more than a slave or an animal. So if she became a Christian independently of her husband, the potential for problems was so much greater. And so that's why Peter spends a little bit more time teaching the ladies. It posed some serious problems then, and as we all know, it does pose problems now. Think about it. A woman becomes a Christian, and all of a sudden she feels superior to her husband. She feels like now she knows what the Bible teaches. She belongs to God now. She knows so much more than he does. So how could he possibly be the leader of this family? But not only that, she keeps meeting these great men at church who are faithful Christians. She may become envious. She may become indifferent to her own husband and much more attracted to the godly men that she sees who love Christ because she the, sees the potential for a situation like that, the potential in a situation where a man's loving her like Christ loves the church. And so this can lead to great and serious problems. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit regenerates her, and she becomes a Christian, and she begins to learn things like Galatians 3.28. In Christ, there's neither male or female. We're all one in Christ. She realizes that in Christ, she has reached a level of living that her unsaved husband knows nothing about. She's free in Christ. She has a new Lord, a new master. And it would be so easy for her to treat her husband with disdain, with indifference, or even with rejection. If she's not careful, he can become very distasteful to her and even repulsive. But this is no different than a situation where a coworker or where a worker has a boss who's just so ungodly, he could feel that urge to want to put him in his place, who feels superior because of his conversion. And so it's important that Peter addresses this to help women out, save them from potential problems, abuse, um, help her to not embarrass her husband. Respect was huge back then. So let's see what God says about Christian women with unsaved husbands. How can she conduct herself to win an unsaved husband to Jesus Christ? How can she have a good testimony before him and before God? 
But before we get to the do's, let's look at, let's look, let's look at what Peter doesn't say. He doesn't tell her, okay, now that you're a Christian, get out of there and go find a Christian man who thinks like you and will love you like Christ loves the church. He doesn't tell her to do that. Why? That'd be sin. 1 Corinthians 7.13 says a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, doesn't want to leave, let her not send her husband away. If you have an unsaved husband, don't send him away. Don't divorce him. Paul says that's forbidden by God. In fact, the next verse in 1 Corinthians 7.14, he says the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. What does that mean? It is a grace of God that that man is married to a wife that loves Jesus. A non-Christian man doesn't realize how much of a blessing it is to have a child of God living in his home, being his wife. That doesn't mean that he gets saved through having a Christian wife. It simply means outwardly in his life, he, he's blessed. It's not speaking of inward sanctification. It's just an outward grace of God that spills over on him because of her. So the unsaved husband may stay. And if he stays, it says the, the believing wife shall let him stay. That's God's plan. But what if he does want to leave? 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15. Let him leave. If the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother and sis or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. If he wants out, let him out. You're not in bondage. That is the bond. The bond is broken. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband or, um, or husband? How do you know whether you'll save your wife? You don't know if they're going to get saved. If he wants to stay, let him stay. But if he wants out because he can't tolerate your Christian testimony, let him go. Well, then you say, well, now, wait a minute. What if I want him to stay so that he will get saved? Well, Paul said, you don't know if he'll be saved. You don't know if she'll get saved. And so that's the point. And Peter, basically, by not saying that, he's making the same point. He doesn't tell women to leave. He doesn't tell them to rebel. Stay and do all that you can to win that husband. But if that husband wants out and leaves you, you're not under bondage anymore. The marriage is broken. Don't fight tooth and nail to hold it together, thinking you're going to lead him to Christ in an uncomfortable, chaotic, warlike environment. Second, he doesn't tell the believing wife to preach at him. Don't argue with him. Don't put Bible verses on the bottom of his beer cans or his cups. You're not in and out. He doesn't tell her to stick gospel tracts under his pillow. He doesn't tell her to badger him with the gospel. Now, doesn't mean you never share the gospel with him. If he asks, if there's an opportunity with grace, share it. But you're just, you're not arguing with him and being loud and badgering him. He doesn't say anything like that. And then third, the last don't, is he doesn't tell her to, he doesn't tell her to demand her rights. He doesn't tell her that she's now equal to man, and so she should demand her rights. He doesn't say that either. She's equal, of course, in value, and to any other believer spiritually, but she still has a marital role to fulfill. In Christ, there's neither male or female, they are one, but in marriage, there is headship 
and submission. Now you're probably thinking, okay, now, well, what does Peter actually say? You're taking forever. Okay, okay, we'll get to it. You don't have to yell. Peter gives three things for believing wives to do. The first one is be submissive. Verse 1 says, in the same way, you wives, in the same way as what or who? In the same manner as citizens submitting, in the same manner as employees submitting, here it says, in the same way or likewise, you wives be submissive. The Greek word hupotasso means to be in subjection, to line up under. It's used in military context. Realize that you have to take your place as subordinate to the leadership and the leader and the headship of your husband. This is God's good design for marriage. Now, it's important. Remember, women, they're not inferior. They're not inferior in character or intelligence or virtue or spirituality. They're not inferior in giftedness or in any way. That's not what this is saying. So just get that out of your head. That's what the world wants you to think that submission is. That's not what this is saying. They have simply been given a role that puts them in the place of submission to the headship of their husband. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, that is, they are unsaved, that they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. That's the basic point. He says, if you want to win that husband to Christ, if you want to do all that you can and only God knows whether it will happen, if he'll be saved, but if you want to make the maximum impact on the life of an unsaved man, then be a submissive wife. That's it. If you want to make a maximum impact on society, be a model submissive citizen. At work, a model submissive employee. At home, Model submissive wife. It's the same principle. Something else that's important to note here is that Peter says, be submissive to who? Your own husband. Not to every man on earth. I know some people teach that. I've heard it many times. But every time submission comes up, it's always to your own husband. Besides Christ, obviously. Be submissive to your own husband. This speaks to the Intimacy and the bonding of marriage, this is God's design. 1 Corinthians 11.5 says, Christ, of course, is the head of men. God is the head of Christ. And the man is the head of the woman. Be submissive. Now, here's the kicker. Here's Here's what makes it more difficult. It says, so that even if some do not obey the word. What word? God's word. The word of reconciliation. The word of salvation. And so the issue here is that just as you submit to the government, to your job, submit to your unbelieving husband. That they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. It's important to note that he's not, that he is not saying act right and they will, will be saved. You're acting right doesn't make them saved. They won't be saved without the word of God. They won't be saved without the gospel. That's not what it's saying. Back in 1 Peter 1, do you remember what he said in verse 23? You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable 
That is through the living and abiding word of God. Salvation comes through the word. He's saying that they may be one without a word, not the word. They can only be one with the word. But from that wife's viewpoint, it's more important what you are than what you say. That's the whole point. It can be a little confusing. Just the wording can be a little confusing. They are unbelievers because they do not believe. They do not obey the word, but they might be saved without a word. What? Without arguing or debating by a testimony that can't be ignored. By submitting and living a life that is lovely, gracious, gentle, reflects Christ, makes Christ look beautiful to your husband. The first responsibility of the wife is submission. Or to put it another way, the voluntary selflessness and dependence. Number two, the second do, second responsibility, is to be faithful. Verse two says, when they see you respectful and pure conduct. It's just a faithful life. It's a basic truth, spiritual truth for a marriage. He's talking here about a pure life. What does this mean? Basically, it means irreproachable conduct. She's to be faithful to her husband, faithful to her God. Don't break the trust. You want to win your unsaved husband, one, be submissive, two, be faithful. It means you're not fooling around with anybody else. It means you're pure, respectful. It means that you respect him, even when he does things that you don't agree with, like not obeying the word. <laughs> respectful. You demonstrate that respect. You never get involved with anyone else, and you show him proper respect. It's a short one. Number three, be modest. The third principle comes in verses three to six. He spends a big chunk here, and it's on modesty. In verse three, it says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. And this is a very important point for the Christian wife trying to win her unsaved husband. He says, look, the normal obsession of women is on the outside. I mean, everyone, every woman is obsessed with the outside. I think we can all agree on that. Our society, in our society, the normal preoccupation of women is on the outside. It's on the external adornment. Our culture is obsessed with makeup. It's obsessed with lip fillers and Botox and lashes, injecting things, hair, jewelry, clothing. But Peter says, do not let your adornment be merely external. Is Peter saying that you can't wear makeup or you can't do your hair? No, he's not saying that. He's, I don't think he's against that. After all, the beautiful woman in Song of Solomon, the bride, she was bejeweled, and wonderfully so. And so, is he against putting on dresses? No, I don't think so. What he's saying is to not let that be your constant obsession. Don't be so worried about your looks that you disregard what your character looks like, your testimony. And man, these Greeks and Romans, they really, they got carried away in this area. But we don't have time to go over all those different ways that they were obsessed with the outside but cosmetics were huge. I mean, nowadays we 
we see more and more people with like purple, green hair, like different colored hairs. We see it a lot. But back then, it was nothing new. It was nothing new back then. They had it in Greece. They had it in Rome. Women dyed their hair purple, and they dyed their hair red and green and yellow and all kinds of colors. They weaved it. They braided it. They wore wigs. They really loved wigs that were blonde from people who weren't in the region. They wore hair bands. They wore pins, combs, ivory, tortoiseshell jewelry in their hair. They wore gold and pearls, silk, incense, emeralds, diamonds, all that kind of stuff. They were dripping, as the youth say. They had it all. And it wasn't much different than the fashion and the mentality that we have today. People literally tied their fortunes up in their clothing to show off their wealth. Since they were covered from neck to toe, a lot of their showing off was here. And so, yeah, women tend to be obsessed with the outside. And Peter knows that. And that's not true beauty. And I promise you, that external beauty does not capture the heart of your husband if there's nothing on the inside. Dressing up and showing off all your goodies, all your things that should satisfy only your husband or future husband, showing those things off, they'll definitely capture someone. They'll capture men, but not the men that you want to capture. If you're just trying to show off your body, you're actually showing off what's inside. And again, Peter doesn't condemn all outward adornment. But what does he say? Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. That's where the true beauty is. And Peter says, don't spend all your time and money adorning your body. And you know, that is a temptation. It's all around us, billboards everywhere. It'd be a temptation for a woman in this situation. If you're a woman and you happen to have an unsaved husband, you might not have a super deep relationship on some levels spiritually, and so she turns to other things. She spends her life indulging on things to make her external self all that it could possibly be, to have fun or to feel good or to get others' attention. But Peter says, don't do that. That's not honoring to God, and that's not how you win him to Christ. If you're going to be obsessed, be obsessed with the hidden person of the heart, that inner person, your character, your virtue. 1 Timothy 2.9 says, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing. That is, they ought to be clothed in a modest way, modestly, discreetly, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as befits women making a claim to godliness. Work on the virtue of your life. Work on your character. That will make you far more beautiful than anything on the outside. The most beautiful women on the inside tend to be some of the most beautiful people on the outside. Have you ever noticed how someone could all be all done up, but if they have a bad attitude and they're just nasty, it doesn't matter what the outside looks like. Verse 4 says, you are to adorn the inner person with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Gentle means meek. Quiet means peaceful, calm, in control. The word spirit means disposition. The most beautiful kind of woman is the woman who is meek, gentle, peaceful, 
home and quiet disposition. Now, is that what our culture teaches? Not at all. If I was doing this outside, I'd probably get stoned. <laughs> but is that your testimony? That the inner virtue, the inner virtue that a woman is to pursue or that you pursue is that is what wins the heart of men. And it's not only that, but it is honorable to who? It's highly valued by God. Now again, he's not forbidding outward adornment. He's just saying you must work on the inside. Don't confuse spirituality or this type of talk with being tacky or sloppy. Because if you're sloppy or tacky, then that just draws the attention to the outside too in a different way. And it doesn't help reflect the beauty that God has given to a woman. But the fact is, you're to be modest and to work on the inside. In verse 5, he then gives an illustration. He says, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. How did they adorn themselves? By submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Who are these holy women? The Old Testament saints. And they hoped in God, which means they were true believers. He says, I'm not telling you anything new. Those women in the Old Testament set apart unto God, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. In what way? Submissiveness to their husbands. They're the models to follow. Our culture is full of models and wannabe models on Instagram. You see them on TV and on magazines. But are these the people that you want to model your life after? You want some real models? Open your Bible and read of these holy women. Look at how they adorned themselves. Peter gives an example of one in Sarah. Verse 6, he's, she is a model. Why? He says, she obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Do any wives in here call their husbands Lord? What? You don't? You uh, new married people? That's what we do. <laughs> no. That wouldn't be, that's not popular today. That would be weird. <laughs> Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, Master. She's the model. Calling him is in the present participle, present tense, meaning that she was constantly calling him Lord. She was constantly in submission to him. Now, why does he choose Sarah here? Well, it's because of the next statement. You have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. If you're a believer, you're a child of Abraham by faith, right? It's very clearly outlined in Romans 4, 11 and 12 and Galatians 3. We are the children of Abraham by faith. And so he's kind of just tagging onto that. He's working off of that and saying, you not only will be the children of Abraham by faith, but you'll be the children of Sarah, Abraham's wife, by following her. So he's saying Christian women who follow the pattern of Sarah can be called Sarah's children as well as Abraham's children. You're not only children of faith, but you're children of submission. <clears throat> that's what he says here in verse 6. If you do what is right without being frightened by any fear, without being intimidated, 
I believe every single society since the fall has tried to intimidate women from doing this, from following God's design. I mean, you see it in Genesis 3. It's, our cur- it's the curse. I don't think it's new. But there are also different types of fears in this. It's scary to be submissive to a sinful man. If you're a Christian wife and you had an unsafe husband or even a Christian husband, it's scary. You could be totally afraid to submit to wherever it may lead or to if they want you to sin, but if they want you to sin, you don't sin because God ranks higher. But Peter says, do not be intimidated. Don't be frightened. Don't be fearful. Submit to your husband. Do what's right. Trust the Lord. That's the principle. It's the principle of submission. It's the principle of purity and of modesty. That's how you win your husband without a word. That's how you have a good testimony that can't be ignored. Not with your words, but with your actions. You want to win that unsaved spouse? Be submissive. Follow the pattern of Sarah. Be pure and faithful to him in the physical and the emotional area. Be modest. Decorate the inner beauty that may manifest itself on the outside. And don't get obsessed with trying to fix the outside when the inside isn't what it ought to be. That's how you live as an alien and a stranger in a marriage with the hope of influencing your husband to Jesus. Now, and take a deep breath. It's finally time for the men. Finally, verse 7, it turns the tables. How does a husband win an unsaved wife? That's a little less frequent, but it says, you husbands likewise. Now, what do you mean likewise, Peter? You submit too. There's a submission On our part, go back and read Ephesians 5.21. Submit yourselves to one another. Wives to husbands, husbands to wives. What does this mean? It's not what the world wants you to think it means. It doesn't mean that we submit our authority to the wife or we don't submit to the leadership of the wife, to the headship of the wife. That doesn't change. But we do submit to the needs of the wife. We subordinate our own little world and our own little desires, our agenda to meet the needs of the woman who is our wife, the one God gave to us, even if she's not a Christian. And all of this, for you with believing wives, with believing husbands, and believing husbands, believing wives, how much, like, I hope you're just not hearing all this and just like, this is not for me, this is not for me, this is not for me. This is for us too. We subordinate our own little world and our own little agenda to meet the needs of the woman who God gave us, even if she's not a Christian. Verse 7 says, you husbands, likewise, you have to submit just like the wife, just like the employee, just like the citizen. He's talking to Christian husbands here. You husbands means he's writing to the scattered believers. You're the Christians, and you've got to take care of your wife. By the way, in that culture, A man, like I said at the beginning, could just kill his wife. According to Roman law, if you were to catch your wife in an act of infidelity, you could just kill her. 
without a trial. But if she was to catch you, she wouldn't venture to touch you with her finger. She had no right. So you could just kill your wife if you want to get rid of her. But what is the responsibility of a Christian husband when he has an unsaved wife? Should he just leave? No. Should he just say, I'm going to go find a Christian girl. You're out of here. I'm done with you. What should be his attitude? Three things. Don't worry, they're not, it'll be much quicker. Peter just gave us one verse. <clears throat> live with your wives in an understanding way. Present tense, constantly be continuing to live your life in an understanding way with her. The word is gnosis, that knowledge, deep experiential knowledge. Now, what, do you, what, do you, what do I mean by that? You're sensitive to her needs. You're sensitive to her feelings. And I believe it includes physical intimacy as well because when the Bible says knowing someone, it means having an intimate relationship. Remember, um, Old Testament, Cain knew his wife and she bore a child. You are to live with your wife in the most intimate way possible. Physically, emotionally, that doesn't change. <clears throat> it means to be together with someone in the house. This word live, uh, sunokion. It means to be together with someone in the house, stay intimate, stay close. You are to live with your wife in a deeply intimate way. Don't cut yourself off from her deepest physical, emotional needs just because she's not a Christian you still need to fulfill that dimension. Far from abusing her, or ignoring her, or being indifferent to her, you are to be sacrificially sensitive to her. You're to be thoughtful. You're to be respectful. And that would be kind of a revolutionary thing for this culture, wouldn't it? For a man to become a Christian and then all of a sudden become totally respectful and sensitive and feeling toward his wife who didn't want anything to do with Christ, this would be totally countercultural. But that's exactly what it says. You are to nourish her, in the words of Ephesians 5, cherish her, protect her, maintain that deep, sensitive intimacy. intimacy. Secondly, not only is there to be consideration, but also chivalry. <clears throat> that's another good old word, isn't it? Another one that they're trying to make go extinct. What does he say in verse 7? You have to live with her as with a weaker vessel since she is a woman. She's a weaker vessel. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, weaker is a comparative. And what is it compared to? Well, you're weak too. <laughs> so keep that in mind. But she is weaker. Don't get overconfident with your great abilities. You're weak. She's weaker. But what does it refer to? Physical, emotional, natural weaknesses. A woman with, is physically weaker. It's just true. No matter how much the world tries to, uh, <laughs> tries to say right now. But she must be protected. She must be provided for. She must be nourished and cherished. So husbands, if you have an unsaved wife, maintain deep intimacy with her. Sensitive to all her needs. And understand that she needs your protection. She needs your provision. And then lastly, Companionship, consideration, chivalry, and companionship. This is so good. Grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Now, what is the grace of life? It's not talking about eternal life. 
It's not saving grace. Grace simply means gift. Life is a gift. Marriage is a gift. And you're heirs together in this life. And this is a very important statement. He's not speaking spiritually here. He's speaking maritally. We know he's talking about an unsaved wife because he says, you husbands likewise. And he ties it to 3-1 where you've got a Christian in an unsaved environment. And so we just see how we have a Christian in an unsaved environment with the government and with the uh, workplace and then now here. And so he's saying, look, you must live with her as a fellow heir of this grace of life. Cultivate companionship, friendship, respect her as heirs together of the grace of life. The best that life has to offer. The topping of life. This calls for fellowship, partnership, friendship. These things that were not normal back then. Women were not allowed to associate as friends or even with their own husbands. They were at best to clean the house and bear children back then. So he says, husbands, do that. But if you're not considerate and if you are not chivalrous and you're not a companion, then what's going to happen to you? Or what's going to happen to your prayers? You're going to be hindered. And now if you're in this situation, you might, what's one thing you might be praying for? Their salvation. You don't want that to be hindered by your treating her crazy. You don't want your prayers to be hindered. So how do you win an unsaved partner? By living an exemplary Christian life. It's just that simple. Whether in the government or you're a citizen or you're at a job as an employee or you're at home in a marriage, the role's always the same. You submit to God's ordained pattern for that social relationship. And it may be hard and it may be scary, but you trust the Lord. And you lean into the church for help and encouragement. And you love your spouse. Now, I don't know every single person's marriage, but I do know that there's some with unbelieving spouses. And you guys are a huge encouragement. And you are, you have been a good testimony. And we love you. Keep it up. I pray that we can help you in any way that we can. I pray that you treasure Christ and your good testimony and your good testimony would be so contagious to your husbands so contagious to them that he must know the gospel and he must know the god that you serve and for everyone else learn from these principles like i've been saying don't just brush it off maybe about unequally yoked marriage but you have someone who loves jesus you have someone who has believed the gospel Someone who has trusted in what Christ has done to reconcile us. You have someone who has the Holy Spirit. How much more should you be able to do these things? Ladies, how much more should you be able to submit and be faithful and be modest? And I hope and pray that myself and all the men make it easy to submit. But sometimes it won't be. Men, love your wife. Cherish her. Be chivalrous. Be your companion for life. Because life is hard. Life is hard in a fallen world. And so love each other and walk to heaven together, looking forward to our sweet Savior. It's not easy, but you do have the Holy Spirit, the helper, 
with you. You won't be able to do any of this without him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just, we're so thankful for your word, and we're thankful that your word is sufficient for all of life. It's amazing how this letter that was written to people thousands of years ago is still relevant today. Lord, it's amazing how your word is active and living. I pray that we would believe it and trust it and live it out. Lord, help us live it out. Help us to be submissive. Help us to be lovers of you and lovers of each other. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we praise you. And we pray for the rest of this morning. And um, we just pray that it's all glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, amen.